This morning we will be in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, as we continue in this series. And today's message is titled, Courage to Do It God's Way. Because this chapter challenges you and I to think differently. It inspires us to think differently so that you and I can better align our lives with the purposes of God. And I invite you to reach into the bulletin there and grab the sermon outline so that you can follow along. And I want to encourage you not to approach this just simply as a process of taking notes. But I truly believe that when we open the Bible together that we are embarking on a spiritual mission and that the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit who lives within every follower of Jesus Christ, there's things that He wants to bring to bear in your life. There's fruit that He wants to emerge in your life. And so as we walk through the Scriptures, listen for that small, still voice of the Spirit. Try and sense what God's trying to say to you in a deeply personal way. And then write that down on the sermon outline. And ponder that and pray over that and see what God might do to help you take some next steps in the life of faith. Well, before we open the Bible and dig in together, we're going to take a minute and we are going to pray. And we're going to pray for us and we're going to pray for our world. Please join me. Heavenly Father, it is so evident that we live in a badly broken world. There is so much going on around us to distract us. There's so much going on that causes us concern. And in particular, I know we all feel grave concern over the ongoing war in Ukraine. And this morning, in light of that situation, the words of the psalmist come to mind when he wrote... Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. His victims are crushed and they collapse and they fall under his strength. And he says to himself, oh, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. And so we pray, arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. Oh Lord, we know that you hear the desire of the afflicted and that you encourage them and you listen to their cry. And so defend the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Father, we pray today that those words from Scripture would come true. We pray that you would intervene in what is happening and that you would call Vladimir Putin to account, that you would humble him before you and that you would establish peace. And Father, the ripple effects of that conflict are significant and they've aggravated what's already been an anxious time in our world. And here we sit dealing with the lingering effects of COVID and inflation. As we look around us, we see the continual redefining of morality in our culture. And Father, I pray that we would not give way to uncertainty or to fear, but to hold firmly on to you. 
And may we never forget that the psalmist also writes that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And may we experience the reality of that promise this morning. Please use the truth of these scriptures, scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, to light our way through this broken world so that we can live with confidence, so that we can live with courage, and so that we can follow you faithfully each and every day. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible reveals God as our incredible creator. A very distant God, but does this God want to actually know human beings personally? Does he want people like us to get connected with him in a personal way? And the answer is absolutely. Throughout the Bible, we see God reveal himself to people in a variety of ways so that they can know him, and he then helps them live up to their highest potential. And so we see, for example, that God spoke very directly to people like Noah and Abraham. He got Moses' attention by showing up in a burning bush. Thousands of people met God in an intensely personal way when Jesus walked the earth. Millions of people meet God through the testimony of the Scriptures. God wants us to know him. But there's a challenge because even though we know him, sometimes we can't understand him. And the reality is he doesn't always expect us to. He makes this clear in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 8, where he says, my ways, this is God speaking, my ways are not your ways. There's things that God does that we will not be able to grasp. And in fact, sometimes we find God urging us to do things that from our perspective seem completely illogical. And how should people of faith respond when the clear plan of God makes no sense from our perspective? What do we do when God's plans might actually seem foolish to us? That's the question facing our spiritual ancestors in Joshua chapter 6. At this time, after years of waiting, the Jews finally are ready to inherit the promised land. And as a first step, they must conquer the city of Jericho. And God gives them, personally gives them, a battle plan. But it's a battle plan that seems completely illogical. And so they face a choice. Will they ignore God and fight the battle in a way that makes sense to them? Or will they have the courage to do it God's way? That's what we find in Joshua chapter 6. However, before we look at Israel, we need to consider the situation inside the city of Jericho because that's where this story starts. And Jericho is the story of unbelievers who have sealed themselves off from God. Let's take a look at verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. 
Jericho is at this time a city of some 2,000 Canaanite people who are idol worshipers and pagan. They are facing an Israeli army of 50,000 soldiers or more. And when you live in a fortified city and you're heavily outnumbered, what do you do? Well, you hunker down inside those walls and you wait. And from a military standpoint, that makes sense. However, Israel's occupation and invasion of Canaan is not primarily a military conflict. It's primarily a spiritual conflict, which means that deeper issues are at stake. The people in Jericho have been hearing about God for 40 years, so they know what He can do. Sadly, though, they are not interested in God. And by closing up their city against Israel, they're saying, in effect, we prefer to cling to our pagan gods and our ungodly practices rather than yield to the God of Israel. And this is so terribly tragic. But this is a scene that's repeated throughout human history where human beings who see clear evidence of the handiwork of God choose to harden their hearts against Him. And that is the case in Jericho with one exception. Inside this city is a woman named Rahab that we met in chapter 2. In an act of faith, she helps God's people because she wants to be on God's side. And yet, in that whole city, she's the only one that turns to God. Everyone else is content to seal themselves off inside the city walls, and by doing so, they're sealing themselves off from rescue by God. And so now, with Jericho tightly shut, Israel has two options. They can make a frontal assault, or they can establish a blockade. But there's issues with those approaches. A frontal assault could be deadly because of Jericho's high, thick walls. A blockade also is problematic because the city is well-equipped to hold out. There's a freshwater spring inside the walls. And the residents, knowing what might be coming, they've been storing up food. Archaeologists have found jars full of grain scattered throughout that whole city. They were prepared for a siege, and the evidence is that they probably could have held out for several years. So neither an assault nor a blockade is an attractive option. And yet, based on human logic, the Israelites probably will do one of those because that's all they know. However, before taking action, Joshua wisely consults with God. And God speaks. There's just one small problem. God's instructions seem completely illogical, as we see in the next part of the passage. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. And listen to this. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. 
And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. I don't even know how to react to that. <laughs> I mean, this is not a textbook military assault. March around the city a bunch of times, blow the horn, shout, and the walls are going to fall down. I guarantee they don't teach those infantry tactics at West Point. See, humanly, this makes zero sense. And that's why God said to Joshua, as we read last week in chapter 5, verse 14, God said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. God is going to fight this battle on his terms by unleashing the power of heaven. And for just a moment, I try and put myself in Joshua's shoes. I'm sitting there and I'm hearing these words from God. And I have to say, if that was me, I'd be struggling. Because even if I believed it, I'd be thinking to myself, when I go and tell the people that this is God's battle plan, I'm going to sound pretty ridiculous. Are they going to buy this? We have no idea what Joshua may be thinking. But here's what he does know. He understands that he doesn't need to understand. And that is so important, I'm going to say it again. Joshua understands that he doesn't need to understand. God's plan may seem illogical from a human perspective, but this battle plan is logical to God and that's all that matters. Joshua then simply needs to have the courage to do it God's way. And he will. Yet doing it God's way isn't necessarily easy or comfortable. And in fact, when he goes and announces the plan to the Israelite army, it's obvious that God wants them to risk looking foolish. And they must have the courage to repeatedly do something that to them seems illogical, and they must do that before God himself does a single thing. Let's take a look. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests, and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. L listen to this. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And on the second day they marched around the city once and they returned into the camp. And so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day 
that they marched around the city seven times. Ancient Jericho, the best of our ability to determine from archaeology, occupied about 10 acres. And it was a very compact city. It's estimated that a person could walk around the perimeter of that city in less than an hour. So here we have the Israelites saying, okay, God, this isn't the way we've ever fought a battle before, but we're going to do it. So they form a procession, and they got the horns blowing, and the army's marching, and it's marching in complete silence. And that's profound because this is an age of war battle cries. Soldiers don't march silently. They're hollering at their enemies. And so this silence is weird. It's also a hard way to act and react because people inside walled cities stand on the edge of the wall and they jeer at their enemy. And so while the Israelis are marching silently, it's logical that the Canaanites are jeering at them and calling them nasty names. Making them feel ridiculous for their refusal to attack. When somebody jeers at you, do you like to stay silent? (laughs) And God speaking through Joshua says, don't say a word. You know, sometimes doing things God's way requires the courage to look foolish and to absorb some insults. And that's what God asks his people to do here for six days. And here's the other interesting piece of it. This activity is the only thing they do and it doesn't take much time to get the soldiers formed up and to march and then to break formation and return to camp probably takes less than 90 minutes. That's their whole day. And the rest of the time they just sit around and they wait. Is this any way to conduct a battle? That's what I'd be thinking if I was a soldier. And also, why doesn't God just destroy the city on day one and get it over with? Why string it out? There's a very important reason why God waits. He waits because this is a spiritual battle. It's a battle for the hearts and minds and souls of people. It's a battle to establish justice in the world and to punish evil. God waits because he cares about the people in Jericho. And he waits for seven days because seven is the number of completion in the Bible. God started and finished his work of creation in seven days, and he starts and finishes this destruction of Jericho in seven days. And you notice as I read the passage how often seven comes up in this passage. These are huge spiritual signs for the Jewish people that God is in this, that God is orchestrating events, and that he is the commander of the Lord's army. God waits because he wants the Canaanites to have time to reconsider their actions and to open their hearts to him. And based on what we know of our God through scripture, it breaks his heart that they don't take advantage of that opportunity. Because God loves it when people repent and turn to him and ask for mercy. And here the Canaanites sit not responding to God, 
sealed inside their walls, sealing their fate. So they're there trying to defend themselves. Israelites are engaging in this foolish and illogical behavior as they march and as they wait for God to act. And then when God does act, when God does keep his word and do what he says, then the Israelite soldiers still have to respond with courage. Let's take a look. At the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. We'll talk about that word devoted in a minute. It's very significant. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So on the seventh day, after marching around the city seven times, do these armed soldiers actually attack? No, they just shout while these horns are blasting. I was trying to think of a comparable experience. I bet many of us have been like in a football stadium with 50,000, 60,000 people shouting, and the din can be overwhelming, right? Can you imagine with all of these soldiers shouting a war cry and those trumpets blurring? Can you imagine what the din was like in Jericho? I, I think it must have been blood-curdling to hear that. And then in response to that act of faith on the part of the Israelites, the walls fall down. And archaeologists have discovered that they fell in an unusual way. They fell down flat, but they fell mostly flat. And they actually kind of made a ramp. And so rather than having to clamber over piles of rubble, the Israelites were able to go up and over these ramp-like sections and more easily enter the city. Kind of interesting. So in that moment, Jericho's defenses are instantly destroyed, but... The enemy's not been destroyed. And so now the soldiers have to do what soldiers do. And they courageously enter the city. They put their lives at risk. And they go in and they face the enemy. And they go in not to wantonly kill, but to carry out the judgment of God. Now, I talk to a lot of people today who don't get this. And I understand that from a modern-day perspective, this kind of wholesale destruction just doesn't seem appropriate. And it's common to respond and say, well, God had to do that because the Canaanites were an evil people. They had an evil, ungodly culture. But a lot of modern people say that that argument doesn't wash because they don't ever want to designate any culture as evil. The fact is, God does make those kinds of judgments. And he's the creator and he's entitled to make those judgments. And some cultures are not just wrong, they are in fact evil. 
Book of Exodus, chapter 22, 20. It says there that whoever sacrifices to a false god must be sacrificed. You see, it's one thing to believe in an idol or a false god and to pray to that god. It's another thing entirely to take a living creature and offer it as a sacrifice to that false god. And pagan groups who sacrificed to false gods, as the Canaanites did, they often sacrificed human beings to their idols. And in the eyes of God, that's not just wrong, that is evil. And evil must be judged by a righteous and holy God. That's why Joshua says here that Jericho will be devoted to God. And in this particular case, that word devoted means judgment through total destruction. And that's not normal in a battle. Normally the winning side goes in, and after the enemy is defeated, they keep the spoils of the town. They get to use all the things that are there. But when people are under judgment, there are no spoils worth keeping. Everything is tainted, it's evil, and it must be eliminated. The Jews don't get to use any of it. And there's only one exception. God takes valuable metal, and that goes into the Lord's treasury, but it's not for the use of the people. And what God is doing here is he is pronouncing a spiritual sentence on evil. And it's hard to read, and it's tragic, and yet we always must remember that human beings have free will. And even people under judgment can turn to God. We saw this recently in a very vivid way back in January when we had a sermon series through the book of Jonah. And we saw how God was merciful toward the evil Assyrians when they repented. And let me tell you, that culture was just as evil as the Canaanite culture. And they changed their hearts and they said, God, have mercy on us. And God said, you bet I will. And in the same way, God's mercy is available to everyone in Jericho. Yet only Rahab has the courage to respond in faith and say, I want to turn to God. I want to be on God's side. And, and so what about Rahab? She's there in the city. She's pledged herself to God. Here's this assault going on. She needs to be rescued. So there's two spies that she had sheltered previously when they went in to scope things out. And, and Joshua now sends those two spies in to say, you go in and bring her out. See, God now has acted. The city is, is being taken care of. And, and Rahab must have the courage to leave the city and begin an entirely new life among foreign people. So we take a look at that next. The two men who had spied out the land, excuse me, to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, 
Listen to this. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So back in chapter 2, where Rahab hid the spies, those spies said, you and your family will be saved when we come in and destroy the city if you're all in your house at the time the city falls. But here's what's interesting. Rahab's house was built into the walls of the city. So wouldn't she and her family be killed when the walls came down? Nope. Because... On one side of Jericho, archaeologists have found a small section of one wall that didn't fall down. And there were houses built into that wall, the kind of houses where Rahab would have lived. And furthermore, archaeological evidence from that part of the city indicates that that little piece of standing wall was in the kind of neighborhood where a prostitute like Rahab would live and run her in. And so think about that. Most of the city walls fell down at just the right time and in just the right way to let the Israelite soldiers in and simultaneously one small section of one wall remained standing to protect Rahab and her family. Is that a coincidence? I think not. By the way, some Bible skeptics think that the city walls were destroyed not by God, but by an earthquake. And my response would be, well, if it was an earthquake, it was a highly selective quake to knock down all these walls and leave one little section standing. However it happened, God rescued Rahab. And her rescue tells us that this story is not solely about judgment. It's also a story about salvation. In the midst of the conquest of Jericho, God is looking for people with a heart for him. So he's watching over Rahab because she's asked for mercy and she receives mercy. And now she has the opportunity to begin a new life as a child of God. after the rescue their family stays outside the Jewish camp as we read in the passage and that might seem a little puzzling like they're not welcoming her in well what we learn from other parts of the Old Testament is that when foreigners decide to join up with Israel they go through a seven day purification ritual there's that number seven again seven day purification ritual and after that then they're welcomed into the community of faith and oh is Rahab welcomed She eventually marries a wonderful Jewish man, a man of great faith. They have a son named Boaz. We meet Boaz in the Old Testament book of Ruth, and he's a man of faith and wisdom and dignity. Where did he get that from? He got it from his mom and dad. And one of Boaz's direct descendants is a carpenter named Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, our Savior. You see, I don't think it's any surprise that Rahab is mentioned twice in the New Testament as an example of courageous faith. In this part of her story, she risks everything, and because of that, her life is transformed. 
And she becomes a woman of significance in Israel with an incredible legacy of faith. And once she's out of the city, and the family's safe, the city is burned, and Joshua places a curse on Jericho. And here's what's wild. About 300 later, years later, that curse comes true for a king named Hiel. You can read about this in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16, verse 34. Hiel decides to rebuild Jericho. And his oldest and his youngest sons die in the process exactly as Joshua stated. I think that exact fulfillment of that curse is yet another indication that this unusual story indeed is true. It tells us that the record of the Bible is trustworthy. These are unusual, distinctive, and amazing events as God works out His will for the purpose of saving people and pronouncing judgment on evil. And all of these events that we've read about take place because the Israelites and Rahab have the courage to do it God's way. Now, we obviously don't live in that ancient Middle Eastern time. And as we think about how to apply the lesson of that passage to our own lives, I think the possibilities are almost endless. I think we have to ask, what does it mean for you and I to have courage to do it God's way? I want to offer some examples. Some of you are familiar with Graydon Jessup. You met him when he came and was a guest preacher for you a couple of times this last year. What you probably don't know is that Graydon and I worked together for 17 years in Southern California. He was the lead pastor of our very large church of 2,500 people. I was his senior associate and right-hand man. And I loved working with Graydon because he taught me so much. But one of the things that he taught me was that I have the courage to do it God's way. There was a time when our church was growing rapidly. We were on a landlocked parcel. It was hard to grow. We were running four services on Sunday. The place was packed, and we needed more land to handle the crowds that were coming. I mean, it was a wonderful blessing. And the only way we could grow was by buying parcels around the church. And there was one particular parcel that we viewed as very strategic. We'd been praying for God to provide it to us for more than a decade. And finally, out of the blue, here it came. And the owner said, yes, I will sell it to you. So it was an answer to prayer, and the timing was absolutely horrible. Because the price was several hundred thousand dollars that we did not have. And it was in the middle of a recession, and we already were paying a mortgage on another neighboring parcel that we'd purchased, and we didn't want to incur any more debt. So what should we do? Human logic says, forget it, or get a loan, or do a fundraising campaign. Graydon, after a time of prayer, believed that God had a different plan for us. And here was the plan. We signed an agreement to purchase the property and we set a closing date and we had no idea how to pay. <laughs> now, now that was illogical, but is that any more illogical than marching around Jericho? <laughs> and Graydon said, God has made the property available, so we're going to pray. And that's all we're going to do. We're going to pray. 
So on Sunday mornings during worship, we didn't make announcements with pleas for money. We didn't do the typical fundraising thing where you, you, know, you put a chart in the lobby and you say, here's the goal, and then every week we show progress toward the goal. We didn't do anything like that. What we did is very simple. For, for, for three months, every Sunday we took space in the service and we simply asked everyone to pray two simple prayers. Lord, do you want me to give toward buying this property? And if so, how much? Between an individual believer and God. And Graydon said, you see, it's about people's need to hear from God and to give. It's not about what the church needs. It's about what God wants to do in them. So he said, so we're not going to track our goal. We're just going to receive the money. And we receive money every week, and we didn't count it. We just stuck it all in the church safe. We told the church, we're going to announce what we have received, what you have felt led to give. We're going to announce that to the church one week before the closing date. And, of course, people are very anxious and said, well, what if we're short? What if we don't have enough money? And Graydon said, then I believe God will show us what to do. So the Sunday before the closing, Graydon gets up to church. May I have the envelope, please? <laughs> Opens up the envelope. The church treasurer's counted the money. And God had given us more than double the need. And we paid cash for that parcel that we'd been waiting for for more than a decade. And we retired the mortgage on the other property that we'd been paying a loan on. I, I can't tell you how exciting that was for our church. Because they, they weren't pressured. We weren't raising money. People were just praying, saying, God, how do you want me to participate in this work that we believe that you're doing? And this happened because of Graydon's spiritual courage. He, he believed he believed completely that God was asking our church to do something that was not entirely logical, and he was willing to risk embarrassment and failure. He had the courage to do it God's way. And we had the courage to follow his lead. And the church was blessed. So I thought about that in light of us. And I wonder, could it be that in the days or weeks ahead, God might ask you and I to display some spiritual courage on behalf of Thurston Christian Church as we walk through this season of transition? Is there something perhaps that God might ask us to do together that would seem illogical and yet it would be transforming for each of us and for our church as a whole? I don't know the answer to that question, but I wonder, and I'm praying, what does it mean for us to have the courage to do it God's way? And a willingness to do it God's way sometimes applies to the community of faith as a whole, and, and sometimes it applies to us as individuals. And, and I've experienced that certainly in my own life. I have absolutely horrible, horrible spring allergies. Some of you are probably familiar with that allergy scratch test that they do. They put the pollens on your arm and they see a little bubble that, you know, comes up. When they did that on me years ago, my entire arm swelled up. I mean, I have a horrible reaction. And 11 years ago, said, God, God said, Bruce, guess what? You're moving to Eugene, the pollen capital of America. <laughs> I 
And so here I serve, sniffling and sneezing and wheezing my way through life. But you see, doing it God's way isn't always comfortable. God always has bigger things at stake than our comfort. And sometimes for an individual follower of Christ, doing it God's way can be very dramatic. And that's what my friend Dale discovered. Dale is a devout, devout follower of Jesus. And one night he was sound asleep, and at about 3 o'clock in the morning, he was just jolted awake. I mean, he went from total asleep to total awake, and running through his head were words that he could not hear audibly, but they were being seared into his mind, go to John's house now. And he's thinking, whoa. Well, it's the middle of the night, and John lives 30 minutes away, and I don't really want to get dressed and drive across town at 3 in the morning, so, so I'll just call John. And that voice kept saying, now, go now, go now. And, and Dale knew it was God speaking to him, but it felt like it's an incredibly foolish thing to do. But he did it. So he got up and put on his clothes and drove across town, and as he drove, he was thinking, what am I supposed to say? John's going to wonder why I'm knocking on his door at, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, and he's a great friend, but he doesn't even believe in God. So Dale arrived, and he knocked on the door, and John answered almost immediately, which was very interesting. And John said, why are you here? And Dale, for a minute, kind of gulped and hemmed and hawed, and he said, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I believe God sent me. And John's eyes opened really wide, and he invited Dale to come in, and they sat down, and in just a few minutes, John confessed that he'd been sitting there in the dark with a loaded gun, ready to take his own life. Now he was in shock. And he said to Dale, if God cared enough to send you right to my door in the middle of the night, then maybe my life still has some kind of meaning and purpose. And a few months later, John was baptized and gave his life to Jesus. Dale did something that was crazy and illogical from his perspective, and he was very willing to risk looking foolish and knocking on a friend's door in the wee hours of the morning and saying, God sent me. He had the courage to do it God's way, and God used him to save the life of his friend. Wow. What might the courage to do it God's way look like in your life? Maybe it would be a very unusual career change. Maybe it's a relocation somewhere that doesn't quite make sense from your perspective. Maybe it's taking the initiative to forgive someone who has wronged you when they have shown no change of heart. To forgive them when your instinct is to get revenge rather than be reconciled. 
in so many different situations of life, we have instinctive responses that we think are obvious and logical, but sometimes they're not the right answer. And we need to ask, what course of action might God want us to take? And I hope that in the really important decisions of life, particularly when the options facing us seem illogical and don't add up, that you and I always would be willing to say, Heavenly Father, I will have the courage to do it your way. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for this amazing example of your power. I thank you for the example of your care for the Israelites and your concern for the salvation of Rahab and her family. And, and I hope that we're encouraged by this story. And I hope that we're also challenged by this story. Challenge to realize that sometimes our ways are not best. And I pray that we'd be willing to listen more closely to you, to listen to that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit, to discern your plans more clearly, and always to have the courage to do it your way. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.